Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of having a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Father Thomas Greeno, professor of systematic theology at Seton Hall University, and also with me the co-chair of the movement known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Welcome, Tom, to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks, Dean George. It's wonderful to be here. Now, we want to talk about some of your recent writings and in particular about Vatican II. You have a brand new book coming out from Erdman's Press next year on Vatican II. But let's begin maybe by telling a little bit about your own story. Where did you come from? (laughs) Great, Timothy, and welcome to all of our listeners. Greetings in our Lord. Again, my name is Tom Garino, and uh, I teach systematic theology at Seton Hall, as Timothy said. I felt a strong attraction to uh, to the church when I was a teenager. You know, I kind of had a plan to, to go into chemistry, and uh, I had all these chemistry sets around the house, and I was always mixing chemicals. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I just got this sense of attending church much more frequently, and ultimately I felt a call to the priesthood. So uh, I went to college. I went to Seton Hall University for college, and then I went after that I went to the seminary in Rome, the North American College, and I was ordained after that, and I worked for a while in a parish. And then I went on for my doctorate at the Catholic University of America. Uh, I received my doctorate in theology, and I had always been interested in ecumenism. So gradually, I, even though my work was not originally in ecumenism, but it was on many of the precursors to the Second Vatican Council. I wrote on a French theologian by the name of Henri Bouillard, and Bouillard, interestingly enough, I won't go into the details, he was silenced for a while, and while he was silenced, he wrote a huge three-volume study of Karl Barth, and uh, Bouillard's, which became very important in the Catholic world, he was one of the first authoritative Catholic interpreters of Barth. Yeah, he and and von Balthasar, both, uh, were interested in Barth. Yeah, absolutely, and... uh, if I may just digress with a funny story, many of your listeners may know uh, Avery Dulles, Cardinal Avery Dulles, who was long involved in evangelical Catholic dialogue. But Avery Dulles, was, when he was thinking of writing his doctoral dissertation, he met with Bouillard. And Bouillard said to him, well, if the Jesuits give you 10 years, you have to write on Bart." He said, if they only give you five years, write on Bultmann. If they only give you three years, write on Ebling. So, so, uh, as a matter of fact, Avery Dulles did write on, he didn't write on one of those thinkers, but he wrote on basically Protestant understanding of the word in preaching. So, reflecting on his own Presbyterian background and the importance of that. We had uh, Cardinal Dulles with us here at Beeson on several occasions, and the book that we remember so well and used by some of our students in their classes is Models of the Church. Sure. That's a later book, but a very uh, perceptive reading yeah. on how to understand the church, how it's seen yep. throughout history and uh, throughout ecclesiology today. Right. And, of course, Avery was an influence on me. He was teaching at Catholic University when I was a student there. And, uh, of course, he was always deeply interested in ecumenism. And later I had the good fortune to, to get involved with uh, – was invited by uh, Richard Newhouse and Chuck Colson to get invited with evangelicals and Catholics together. And uh, that's been a great blessing in my life this past uh, 22 years. 
Yeah. Uh, we want to talk about Vatican II sure. because you have a brand new book, as I say, coming out next year from Erdman's on Vatican II. Now, many of our listeners will be well familiar with this story, but some sure. not. Sure. So why don't you pretend you're speaking to people who've never heard of Vatican II? Good. What Good. is Vatican II? Good. How did it come about? Yeah. Good, Timothy. Well, Vatican II was a, a council. We might call it a global meeting. John O'Malley, who has a book on it, said it's probably the biggest meeting that the world has ever seen of 2,500 people in one place to meet with an agenda. And uh, it came about in, uh, it started in 1962, but the preparation started many years before that. John the Twenty-Third was convinced that uh, there needed to be a global meeting you know, what we call in Catholicism an ecumenical council. There are a lot of questions about that, but let's just leave it at that for the moment. And it was really all the bishops of the world and most of the, all the Catholic bishops of the world and most of the great Catholic theologians of the world gathered in Rome to discuss many issues. Now, John the Twenty-Third got the idea for it in, back in 1958. John the Twenty-Third, uh, listeners may remember, was a pope who was elected pope when he was 76 years old. Pius the Twelfth had died, and he was considered to be an interim measure. Uh, he was an old man already in his late 70s. Kind of a caretaker. Yeah, that's right, that he would be pope for a few years, and then and then a younger, more vigorous man would take over. But John the Twenty-Third surprised the world when he called an ecumenical council. Nobody was expecting it. And, uh, you know, you might say, why did he call an ecumenical council? Well, in many ways, it was an evangelical spirit. He, spelt, he, he felt the Catholic Church had to be renewed, uh, that it had grown a little stale, that it had grown a little, uh, shall we say, had some hardening of the arteries. And he wanted to renew the church, rejuvenate the church, rejuvenate the preaching of the gospel. Uh, he talks about, he even talks about it as a new Pentecost, an outpouring of the Spirit yeah. where the gospel will be preached more strongly. Now, the council, the previous council was the 19th century Vatican I. That's right. So it had been almost 100 almost years. Almost 100 years. That was called in 1869, almost 100 years. And before that, uh, the Council of Trent right. in the Reformation. Right. So the Council of Trent, in a sense, responding to the Protestant Reformation, Vatican I, responding in some ways to French Revolution, secularism, all of that. But Vatican II had a different kind of agenda That's and aura right. to it. That's right, uh, Timothy. And, you know, first, you know, the, the Catholic Church recognizes 20 ecumenical councils. Vatican II is the only councils without condemnations. And John Twenty-Third didn't want it to be a council with condemnations. He thought it should be something different. It should be a, a chance to preach the gospel. Why did he think it was so important? Well, I, you know, looking back, I think he, had, he himself had served as a papal diplomat in various countries. He had been in Greece, he had been in Bulgaria, he had been in Turkey. So he had been in countries without many Catholics. Bulgaria uh, and Greece were mostly Eastern Orthodox countries. Turkey, of course, was uh, an Islamic country. And he had, of course, like all people of his age, he would have lived through World War II. And, you know, several... Uh, really events that were distressing and discouraging for humanity. So I think when I look at John the 23rd's life, I think he really thought that the council has to emphasize forging strong links among all men and women. I think that was his concern, that that the world had been through World War II, through the Holocaust, through the dropping of nuclear weapons. And of course, in 1962, I can remember as a boy, we were in the middle of a pretty nasty Cold War with a nuclear-based Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of tension in the world generally. 
And I think John the Twenty Third's motive was how can we be fully committed to the gospel, but at the same time forge links, forge links between Catholics and Protestants, forge links between Christians and Jews, forge links between even serious-minded people who don't believe in God. So I think there was even an attempt to say, look, even those who, who want a better world want to work for truth and justice, even if they're not impelled by the love of God, we can establish some links with them. So I think his his desire was this council, as he says, other councils have used condemnations. Vatican II will use the medicine of mercy. And yeah. I think that's famous. Now, there are two words I, w- I would like for you to comment on. The one's French and one's mm-hmm. Italian, often used to describe Vatican II, its mm-hmm. spirit, what you were just mm-hmm. saying about John 23rd's vision. One is this French word, ressourcement, yeah. and the other one, aggiornamento. Right. Talk about those words, what they mean and how they apply to the council. Well, Timothy, you haven't even read the book, but you're already reading my mind on this. So I have a chapter dedicated to, uh, you know, what I call the three key words of Vatican II, ressourcement, aggiornamento, and development. And all of them, in a sense, are change words. I call them the change words of Vatican II because they indicate some kind of change in a different way. Resourcement means going back to the sources. And this had been gathering steam in France, especially to some extent in Germany. But it was that if the Catholic Church were going to be renewed, it had to be renewed through the Bible and through the early Christian writers. And so there was a tremendous – and there had been, of course, as you know, there had been great uh, – exegetical scholarship by great Protestant exegetes and some by Catholic exegetes. So there was an attempt to say, how can this help to renew the church today? How can all the emphasis we have on the early church, the ancient Christian writers, how can this be brought to bear on the church? How can we open up the treasures of the gospel, open up the treasures of the early church? Uh, I'm reminded of the fact that in the, in the late 30s, and it's still going on today, some French authors had established a series called uh, Source Chrétienne. And the idea was to put out cheap paperbacks of the early Christian writers and say – and they were worried. They said, you know, French Marxists are using language like brotherhood, fraternity, justice. These are Christian terms. And we can't let the Marxists hijack a Christian idea. So they said, let's put into the hands of the French people cheap paperbacks of the ancient Christian writers so we can see that the, the wealth of the early church. So this was a big part of Resource Mont was to go back, go back to the Christian sources, preeminently the Bible and then the ancient Christian writers and use these to renew the church of today. Adjournamento is a trickier word. It has to be properly understood because if you just translate from Italian, it simply means being up to date. No, um, I always think of that word when you go to Italy, to Rome, they, everyone says, buongiorno, good morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's right in the middle of that word. You Absolutely. Know. Hello, good morning. Absolutely. Wake up. <laughs> being, yeah, being contemporary, being contemporary. But of course, it can't be understood as simply adopting contemporary norms. It has to be understood as bringing the gospel to the contemporary world. Mm. So, uh, you know, I always say aggiornamento is a tricky word if not – because some people will say, well, the, John the Twenty Third wanted the church to be up to date. But they mean by that somehow adopt contemporary standards. That was not the intention. It was how to take the rich patrimony of the church – and make it understandable to the men and women of our day. Would you agree with me that in both Catholicism and Protestantism, however, there have been people who have interpreted the work of the Council and indeed uh, theology on both sides of the confessional divide exactly in that what you say is the wrong way? Absolutely right, Timothy. And I would say, 
you know, in the chapter of the book that I deal with that, I say, look, the church has always in one sense been up to date. And what I mean by that is if we look at the early Christian writers, they were not afraid to use some ideas from Plato. They were not afraid to use some ideas from Aristotle, but molded by the gospel, conformed to the gospel, not the other way around. So there's nothing wrong with using contemporary ideas. However, always molded to the gospel, not molding the gospel to their image and likeness. So John the 23rd, when he used that term aggiornamento, yes, he was wanted the church to preach the gospel in a contemporary way, in a vivacious way, in an effervescent way to the world today, not simply to adopt contemporary standards, although Timothy is exactly right. The misinterpretation of that word has been rampant. And that's why I say it's tricky I try to spend some time on it, unpacking it. Yeah. Well, you know, John the Twenty Third was really the, the heart and vision of the council in so many ways, though he died before it was yeah. completed, and it had to be uh, completed, presided over by his successor, yeah. Paul uh, the Sixth. But I wonder, uh, on, on John the Twenty Third in, in particular, uh, he was so, in a way, revolutionary, it yeah. seems to me, in how he set up the council. Yeah. Because for one thing, uh, he invited, uh, I think for the first time in the way that they function, Protestant observers right. who were not just kind of bystanders. They were very thickly involved in the machinations of the decision making. Yeah. Well, he was insistent on ecumenism, John the Twenty Third, And of course, he, he established the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity and raised it to the level of a conciliar commission uh, equal to all the other conciliar commissions. So he was convinced, and he put it ahead of it, Cardinal Augustin Bea, who was a very strong-willed German cardinal. so a biblical scholar. Right? And a biblical scholar. And uh, so Bea, you know, was, and the secretary was Monsignor Villebrands, a Dutch theologian who had been involved in ecumenism. And, of course, one ger- from Germany, one from the Netherlands, so they had deep association with Protestant Christians. And uh, so it was a very, very, it became a very powerful committee and one that John the Twenty Third wanted to see. Uh, to be powerful. And to, and to his credit, Paul VI continued that. Also, as Timothy mentioned, the Protestant observers, that's been one of the most delightful, uh, parts of my own research is to, is to look at the Protestant observers because, well, one of the things is so much of the work of the council went on, as you would expect, behind the scene with theologians. And of course, all the theologians knew one another. The vast majority of them were from Europe. Uh, and so they were French, German, Belgian, the Netherlands, I would say those would be the four countries where the most theologians were from. And Protestant and Catholic, they had worked together for years uh, on various things. And uh, someone like Yves Congar had been involved in ecumenism since 1939 when he wrote a famous book, Christendom, Christendom Divided, which was really a groundbreaking book because he basically said, look, Protestantism has a lot of gifts which we have to listen to as Catholics. In 1939, that was a fairly revolutionary thought. And uh, But they had worked with men like Oscar Coleman, who was a very prominent, uh, involved in all four sessions of the council, deeply involved, not just with the decree on ecumenism, because for every document which was discussed, it was presented in its draft stages to the Protestant observers for their remarks. So they really had input on every document uh, of, of the Second Vatican Council. 
And so they had a significant influence. And John the Twenty Third wanted this very badly. And by the way, physically, they had the best seats in the house. I often say they were right up in the front of the altar of St. Peter's, just off to the left. So they were in a great spot. Now, you mentioned the decree on ecumenism, which is one of the stellar documents of the Vatican Council in terms of its impact on subsequent ecumenical work and even to this very day. Uh, One of the big advances in the decree on ecumenism was the way in which Protestant Christians were now seen in a different light. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I certainly will, uh, Timothy. And, you know, as we just had uh, a beautiful worship service in the, uh, in the Hodges Chapel of Beeson Divinity School, and I talked a little bit about that. There was a real emphasis at Vatican II, and I think this is a, was a breakthrough by the Council. And it, it's not talked about too much. And I think one of the reasons is because Vatican II did not want to use scholastic language, it, it, because John the Twenty Third thought this this would block the people from understanding it. So one of the points I make in the book is scholastic language is nowhere to be found in Vatican II, but one important scholastic idea was used is analogy, and that there is an analogical relationship among things which are similar, but maybe not completely coincident. And one of the things the decree on ecumenism really points out is there is so much analogical affinity between Catholics and Protestants on the foundational dimensions of the faith. Obviously, decree on ecumenism also talks about the hierarchy of truth, which is another issue, an important issue. But uh, I think the decree on ecumenism and the council itself, it would said, instead of looking at Protestant Christians as somehow dissidents, which is a word that had been used in formal documents prior to the council, that we should recognize that these men and women are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have some differences, so even some important differences, but nonetheless, we are co-disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we should emphasize in this document how close we are, not concentrate simply on flaws. So I think the greatness of the decree on ecumenism was that emphasis on how close we are united in our faith in Christ, in our faith in the triune God, in our faith in scriptures. And that has led in many ways to a more than a co-belligerency, I would say, a real kind of coalition of the spirit and heart between Catholics and Protestants on so many of the issues. And that's one of the things that you and I have worked together with other friends in evangelicals and Catholics together, that you know, because of our shared faith in Christ, we also are called to a common witness in the world today. Right. Yeah, and I'd just like to say, if I may, Timothy, just in response to that, This is a Lutheran Catholic document just came out in 2017 called Commemoration of the Reformation. But i just like to read the last three lines, with which I think applies to, even though it's about Lutherans, it applies to Catholics and Protestants in general. It says, says, we should always remember the joint declaration which says, Lutherans and Catholics, I would say Protestants and Catholics, share the goal of confessing Christ in all things who alone is to be trusted above all things as the one mediator through whom God in the Holy Spirit gives himself to us and pours out his gifts. So I think, you know, that beautiful statement of faith of saying, let's make that the basis of our unity. Christ is the rock of our unity, not just co-belligerency. I mentioned a while ago the Protestant observers that John the Twenty Third included in the structure of the council. Um, there were no Baptists among the Protestant observers, not because they weren't invited. The Baptist World Alliance was invited to send Protestant observers, and the executive committee of the BWA debated this uh, yeah. vociferously yeah. and declined yeah. the invitation. However, 
there was at least one Baptist who was present. His name was James Leo Garrett, a good oh, yeah. friend of ours, yeah, a yeah. very well-known yeah. um, Southern Baptist yeah. professor. Uh, taught at Southwestern Seminary for many years. And through the uh, hospitality of the great Methodist theologian Albert Outler, oh, yeah. he was invited to come as a guest yeah. and to sit, as you say, up front yeah. with yeah. the Protestant observers. Yeah. And he was there in 1965 in the very last session of the council when the council adopted that document, Dignitatis Humanae, on religious freedom, the Declaration on Religious Freedom. Mm-hmm. And, of course, for Baptists, religious freedom is one of those great cardinal sure. points we can right. never uh, <laughs> say too much about. And and James Leo Garrett has been a strong advocate for religious freedom. So he was there, when it was, a, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder if you would say a little bit about that document itself and the whole question of religious freedom yeah. at Vatican II and how, in some ways, that was uh, really another revolutionary uh, effort. Absolutely. Um, uh, because the document on religious freedom that uh, Timothy refers to, Dignitatis Humanae, that that was uh, that was the first formal document by which the Catholic Church admitted the principle of religious freedom, and one of the reasons that popes and the Church was afraid of it, they were afraid that religious freedom would mean doesn't make any difference what religion you are. Uh, when you look at papal... Relativism. Exactly. When you look at papal documents condemning religious freedom, uh, which, which there are plenty prior to Vatican II, uh, popes always say this religious freedom as if it doesn't make any difference if you're a believer in Christ, as if uh, countries should just encourage people to be diverse religions. Uh, so what they were protesting against was a kind of relativism, an egalitarianism that didn't make distinctions. And so uh, I think when we look at uh, Catholicism, it was afraid of this. It was also afraid, you know, the truth is it was also afraid culturally. Uh, it, it, Catholicism has seen traditionally the state as having some role in fostering the true religion, as it was often referred to. So that the state... Uh, also should get involved, maybe perhaps in the education of children, that there should be religious education of children. Uh, that this, and Catholicism often made the argument in the past that whether or not they become practicing Christians, if children have a religious education, this will help the state because ultimately they'll be better people and they'll have, they'll know the difference between right and wrong. They'll know the difference between virtue and vice. Might not follow it all the time, but they'll have learned it. And so, um, Catholicism really was hesitant on this question of religious freedom. And it was in many ways the American bishops who picked up the ball on this question because really the, the, of course, when the council was held wasn't too long after John F. Kennedy had run for president in 1960 in the United States. And one of the charges was that Kennedy would be a puppet of the pope uh, and that Catholicism really was not in favor of religious freedom. So the American bishops at the council strongly pushed religious freedom and it's turned out to be a blessing. But you're absolutely right. It was a revolutionary, along with the decree on ecumenism. Yeah. They were two revolutionary documents at the council. Exactly. Now, uh, as you know, because we've talked about it and you mentioned it in your address at Beeson t- uh, today, um, we have been remembering the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and in particular Martin Luther. Uh, 
uh, who was and is a major figure, but also a controversial figure. Yeah. And and so many um, Protestants have used the word celebrate. We celebrate the Reformation. We celebrate Martin Luther and his great discovery of justification by faith alone and so forth and so on. Whereas Catholics, by and large, uh, have wanted to say, well, we can commemorate. I remember <laughs> Cardinal uh, Koch, who is the president of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, and so Somebody said to him, are Catholics and Protestants going to celebrate the Reformation in 2017? And he said, why, no, you can't celebrate heresy. You can't celebrate sin. <laughs> well, he didn't He didn't say, let's give yeah. him credit, that all the sinners were Protestants. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he that's said, right. Maybe that's there's some sin to go around. Yeah. But uh, talk a little bit about Luther and the Reformation. Uh, how, how should we look at that as Catholics and evangelicals together? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, good question, Timothy. And I think, you know, as I said uh, earlier today, I think Catholics have come to appreciate aspects of the Reformation. Obviously, from a Catholic point of view, we would have, in retrospect, we would have preferred if this had been done within the church, maybe like Francis of Assisi, who in the 13th century was a reformer. He was dealing with questions because you had you had different groups, sects that were saying the church was not interested in the poor, the church was interested in massing wealth. So Francis kind of put on an old brown garment and tied it with a rope and went around in sandals, you know, didn't have any money, just begged money and preached the gospel. So that was a kind of reform movement that took place in the 13th century. So from a from a Catholic point of view, obviously we we wish that 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 Luther had done that, but for a lot of different reasons things turned out differently. But I certainly would say that Catholics see today honor many aspects of the reformation. I mean, Luther's attempt to put the word of God in the hands of everyone uh, certainly is, is something that Catholics honor and celebrate because this was an important attempt to disseminate the Bible to all people, his lifting up of the doctrine of justification. Catholics understand that today. This had to be, no one's justified by human effort. We're justified by Christ. Obviously, good work should flow from our justification. Which Luther also said. Yeah, which Luther also said. So this should be part of it, but we can't if we sinned on one hand by at one time saying human effort, we don't want to sin now by saying don't worry about it, uh, you know, as long as you cling to Christ. So th- there's two sides to the coin. So I think there's much today in the Reformation that, first of all, Vatican II held up. I, I often say when I look at Vatican II, it tried to deal with two world-shaking events that Catholicism had simply judged negatively. One, the Reformation. Two, the Enlightenment. Mm. At Vatican II, it tried to say, look, uh, there are positive dimensions, especially to the Reformation, but even to the Enlightenment, there's positive uh, dimensions. So the Reformation, justification, emphasis on the Word of God, lots of emphases in the the Reformation were right, and uh, the Catholic Church recognizes that today. And Vatican II did. You know, it tried to receive the Reformation, I always say, in a Catholic way and, and to critically integrate it. Same thing with the Enlightenment. In many ways, religious freedom, it certainly didn't begin with the Enlightenment. There are plenty of early Christians who defended religious freedom, like Lactantius, as we say in one of our statements, Tertullian was a defender of religious freedom, even Augustine. But the Enlightenment made this a principle. And so Vatican II, I think, tried to say, even the Enlightenment has something good, so let's look at some positive aspects of that as well. 
Now, you and I have co-edited a book which contains a number of the statements that have emerged from Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It came out, I think, a year or two ago. Evangelicals and Catholics Together at 20 Vital Statements on Contested Topics. We're almost out of time, but I, I wonder if we could spend a minute or two just talking about ECT, uh, where it's come from, and kind of the future of it. We're beginning a brand new project, and maybe you could say a little bit about that and what we hope will come out of it. Good. Thank you, Timothy. Well, for the listeners who are, who are not familiar with evangelicals and Catholics together, I ask that you try to familiarize yourself with it. It was founded by Chuck Colson, great man of faith, great witness to Christ, great preacher, uh, and Richard John Newhouse, another great man of faith and writer. Uh, and they did it to say we have to witness as Christians together, as evangelicals and Catholics, we have to witness to Christ, to the contemporary world. And this is what it was found. And it was founded – uh, Timothy and I often talk about this. It was not founded on the principle of co-belligerency. It was founded on Christ, mm-hmm. that we're co-disciples of Christ, and Christ is our foundation and rock and of our identity. And because of our co-discipleship, we then say, how as Christians can we witness to the gospel in the world of today? And ECT has, we often say we've moved along two tracks, a theological track and a cultural track. And in theology, we've dealt with issues such as justification, such as scripture and tradition, uh, the role of Mary, the Blessed Mother. So, And on the cultural side, we've dealt with issues such as pro-life, uh, we've dealt with religious freedom. We've dealt with marriage. So uh, it, we've we've kind of dealt with all of these questions, religious free, as I said, uh, cultural issues and theological issues. Now we have these statements collected in the book, which Timothy just mentioned. I, I ask you to familiarize yourself with it, but it's an ongoing project. And I think, in fact, it's one of the most vibrant ecumenical dialogues around today, maybe the most vibrant, because it's continuing and it's continuing to address important issues. We just decided that we're going to to line up our next two most important issues. So we will be treating first of uh, the gift of children, and obviously this is an important issue today. A lot of vectors come together here, human life, marriage, the exercise of human sexuality, the acceptance of children as gifts. Uh, we're going to treat of that, and then we're going to deal with the question of the church, which is a preeminently theological topic. What is the nature of the church? How is the church the body of Christ? How do we live as a church? So, and you know, interestingly, it was many of the younger evangelicals who who insisted that we we take up a, a meaty theological topic. So, God willing, we ask for your prayers and God's blessings on our project. Well, it's been a joy to have you with us here at Beeson, and especially on the podcast today. Your new book is titled Vatican II: Corruption or Development, question mark, and examination to be published uh, very shortly by Erdman's. So I encourage all of our listeners to check it out. You'll find it interesting, challenging, provocative in a good way uh, by one of the great uh, Catholic thinkers and theologians of our time, Father Tom Garino. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Timothy. God bless everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.